Hey, nice shirt, Mr. Alternative Rocker. Yeah, I got this shirt at a festival like six years ago. It's a good shirt. But I love Dinosaur Jr., so I'm allowed to wear it. All right. Is that what you're judging me about or something else? Mm, no, that's it, college boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dinosaur Jr. is the last band that I crowd surfed to. Really? When was that? It is. It was one of the first times I did it and one of the last. It was at Lollapalooza 93. Ooh. And I got tossed in the air. It was wow. like the second time I ever tried and kicked some girl in the face on my way down. <laughs> nice. And quickly realized that guys my size probably shouldn't be doing that. It's not that cool. And then I had a funny experience. <laughs> I And then I tried stage diving a couple times, you know, when I got a little more into hardcore. Ooh. And uh, went to a sick of it all like night show at the Trocadero in Philly. And during Ignite, decided to crawl over some people's heads, landed on all fours on the stage with my ass just totally sticking out because I used to sag my pants so low. So I literally land on all fours in the stage with half of like my chubby adolescent ass like literally showing the trocadero i'm petrified and like pull him up real fast <laughs> and then do like the worst stage dive ever like just like a you know an embarrassed kind of tumble over into the crowd right. and that's when i retired from that so i haven't done either thing wow. since that show which i i'm assuming was like 1997 or something dude so the yeah truck, i retired early by the way that club is was was back in the day when we were touring a lot. That was my favorite club. The place play. is awesome. It's just yeah. like the perfect size. The stage is perfect. It sounded good. It's great. Do you know the truck is one of the things that like sold me on trying to be like a musician, which is funny, like a real musician, like one who gets to do it for real. Uh, when I first started doing shows, the first like cool band I met was H2O. And, like, the first band that were, like, well-recognized that thought I was cool. Right. I think that it was, like, kitschy that I was so young and doing their shows that, like, they were always real cool to me. And they invited me to come see them open for the Mighty Mighty Boston's at the Troc. Wow. And it, was, and it was the first time I got to, like, go backstage, like, watch a show from the stage I mean, watching it from the stage at that age, I, it looked like fucking Wembley Stadium to me. Like, I'd never seen that many people at a right. show. It was, like, so <laughs> intense. Uh, and I ended up meeting, you know, the Boston's that night, which, nice. like, that was a big band in my house. My brother was a huge fan and used to go to City Gardens all the time. To oh, see really? Him. Yeah. So I already knew, like, Don't Know How to Party and some of the old stuff. I was actually, like, a fan. And... uh and I handed uh, my band, Dilemma, at the time, I handed a demo to Dickie. And I was like, hey, man, check this out. He's like, oh, you know, and his voice, just like, he was cool about it. I doubt, I, I'm sure we got added to Roadside Records. Um, but then I met a couple people that night that I ended up like, pen palling with. And it kind of just like, I don't know, wet the palate for like the whole thing, you know? That was a very special show for me. The track is a... A big man. As much as I'd like to diss Philly every chance I get, the track is very <laughs> important to me. I did, you know that I did a bunch of touring with the Boston's. No. Yeah, I they were... Um, well, I played with them once in the Goops. That's when I first met them. But then, like, they loved... The the last band I was in, the Clowns for Progress, they loved that band. 
And they really? used to bring us out on tour all the time. And they were cool. just like, they were literally the best band you could ever want to tour with. Because oh my God. Yeah. they'd been doing it for so long that they were so just cool about everything. They used to give us their day room keys all the time. They'd Class. be like, so we'd get our own rooms every night because they were driving. Yeah. And we'd, oh man, I have some great shows with those guys. That's awesome. Yeah, people forget that, you know, 10 years before the stage dive in Clueless, uh, <laughs> You know, that yeah. they were like like hardcore dudes well, and they, shit, you know? I mean, like, yeah. the thing about the Boston's was that, like, I thought that, I mean, they maybe they wouldn't have lasted, but I think that they were a really good example of what I used to call, like, a middle-class band who, like, mm. were kind of ruined by having a hit single. Like, those guys were making a middle-class living. They had the Northeast locked down. Like, they didn't have to tour the whole country. They could literally right. tour for sure. six months. The Northeast, they had the college circuit down. Like, yeah, yeah, those yeah. guys were they making, did. like, you know, they were making, like, a good living just, like, touring locally and putting out, you know, their indie records. It would sell, like, probably, I don't know, fifty to 70,000 copies. And then, you know, then they got signed into a major and had a big hit. And then, you know, kind of ruins you in a way. I mean, does it ruin it for you? Because I'm no, sure no, I'm those not guys even talking about the, their, I'm not even talking about smash. for the audience. I always compared it to like, like uh, I was actually telling my kids the other day. They were we were looking at somebody, an actor. It was like they, they were they had, they'd been they were like, oh, I've, isn't that the actor we saw? And I was like, yeah, that guy's like one of the best known character actors. I don't remember who it was, but I I was telling him I'm like That's... Robert Loja. <laughs> Maybe so. I don't think it was. <laughs> Oh, okay. But I was like, that's the best gig in Hollywood is like, is a good working character actor. Because like, if you're a big star, like, and you like, and you fall, like, you can't even get character actor work. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but the the thing you're forgetting is like, the thing you're talking about is cool in the moment, but doesn't age well. So if the Boston's had done that, right then they would still have to tour yeah, you're the right. Northeast you're right. for four or five, six months every year into their 50s right. and 60s to even, like, sustain their lives. Right. And they might have gotten some cashish at that time that, you know, allowed them the freedom to stay a band, not grind as hard, you know, like, and the same with a character actor. Like, that guy's dying for that part. No, I know. Just one. Just I think, one. I think there so might be some of these. his whole legacy can be seen in a different way, like... I don't know. You're talking about like, hey man, stay working class. It's not, it's, not even that. You, it's not even you know? that. It's just like the pressure's off if you're a character actor. Like you we don't used have to, to talk worry about, about that. In, yeah, you don't worry about the paparazzi. You don't worry about like falling sure. out of favor. The anonymity might be nice. It's like yeah. it's like a blue collar job. Like that was the right. thing. The Boston's were a blue collar band. But we always, even in Gaslight, we always imagine. You know what? We don't want to play the game, but if we get one of them, it buys us freedom. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you know no. what I mean? That was always our head. It buys us leverage. It buys us freedom. It buys us time to be the kind of band you want to be yeah. consistently for a long time. No, you know? and let's face it. Everybody wants to reach as wide of an audience as possible. And I think that was – and I'm not dissing that. I'm just saying that, like, this other, this other like, way of doing it is too often overlooked and sort of shunned as like yeah. not being successful. Whereas like, you know, look at like bands like them or the swing and utters, you know, like those mm -hmm. guys consistently would sell, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 records every, every, I mean, I'm sure they're still doing it, you know? Sure. And they didn't really, and they don't, 
I mean, now they don't tour that much, but even even back like, you know, like 15 years ago, they weren't touring all year, you know? Like right. those guys could tour half the year and with that and their record sales could kind of I although now that record sales are gone, maybe yeah. maybe it would be tougher. Swing outers, they they could survive if they go to Australia like three times a year. Right. Those bands are huge in Australia. Right. right. Every single California punk band that's fast could just go live in Australia right. and make money forever. Uh. So, Brad, on Twitter today, I <laughs> said that our episode is a day late because of your ongoing saga with your prostate. When I was saying it, I thought like prostates, buttholes, just kind of funny. And then a couple of people responded being it like, seemed like it was oh, serious. Brad, yeah. like, hope you're doing well. And I'm like, oh, no, I'll just be the dick. And then I'm like, Brad is actually at the age where he probably has to get prostate oh, exams. I've had it. Should I feel bad about this? Then I realize the reason I love you so much is that you don't care about that much. So, so I did do that on Twitter. But full disclosure, it's it's my fault. Yeah, Benny's wood f- couldn't stay up, and that's what happened. No, couldn't do it. Got crazy. Yesterday was a day, Brad. As I texted I know, you, it was more than just gonna, the power going out, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to give the torrid details of the entire day. But the power was enough. To, to, to the going off track audience. But it had to do with not only the power going out, trees falling down, uh, emergency hospital visits running on generators. Um, and not for my prostate. Not for your prostate. <laughs> Nor for yours, I hope. <laughs> but dude, man, sorry about the. I hope I didn't put any bad juju into the world. By talking about your prostate publicly, <laughs> I can I can it's, tell it's you the last I, thing I need right as now. As of my last doctor's visit, it was healthy as could be. You know, I'm, I believe in good and bad juju. I even got a gift from someone of Saint Joseph, who's supposed to help you sell your house. Oh, and really? I planted it, planted it in my garden, read the prayer, and everything. I'm like, someone gave this to me. I'm not fucking with this. Yeah, you like, never know. It's going in. You don't want to tempt fate like that. Yeah, you never know. Why risk it? That's what I say. But I walked away from yesterday, as usual, you know, taking a little dance through the medical system, which Mm. I now pay the honor of about $1,500 a month to pay for my fucking family having medical care. Lucky you. That's all I get to say, Benny. (laughs) Yeah. And we pay more than that. Every time I walk away from one of these situations, I go, I literally walk out of hospitals. I go, wow, this country's broken. Yeah. And it's not even like an exaggeration. Like I watched the steps of what happens in there and the ineptitude from administration to enacting what they're supposed to do to decision making to release like everything is this awful haphazard thing. And you pay this like luxury tax in order to get it. Yeah. And it just like blows my fucking mind. It does too. It. It explains two things for me very clearly when I walk away from it. One, this country might be broken. Yeah. To the point that, like, it is, it can no longer be edited or smudged or revised. It's too far gone and it needs, it needs to fucking light the torch, maybe. (laughs) Another thing that it boggles my mind is how any, any lower or working class human being could be a conservative. Right. I don't fucking get it and if you are it's probably because of a cultural reason at this point it's it's probably because you're religious 
or racist. Right. I can't think of another way because they are not working for you, man. Yeah, no, it's like, okay, come the fuck on. I mean, that's always been the joke about, like, especially just the Republican Party in general, is that like it's consistently, consistently the the best metaphor is it's the turkey voting for Thanksgiving. Right. Like literally, these guys are the last people on earth that are going to help you with getting a fucking job, getting health care, any of that. Yeah. They're not they're so not interested. And the thing is, is that it's not like they're hiding it. It's not no, like they're no, pretending no, no. Right. they're going to help the, the, the nope. little guy. They're like, no. oh, no, we believe in no government and no yeah, as long as you keep prayer, no as long as you keep prayer in school, pro-life. Yeah. Keep, uh, you know, black people in the cities and keep our suburbs white. Then we'll keep voting that way. Right. Like, I mean, like I joke at that every... point, voting against your own self-interest only makes sense from an emotional or cultural standpoint. The only thing that I can think is that going through these processes as well, though, does also highlight the ineptitude of government. Right. And the idea that if you keep feeding government more and more money, that things are actually going to get better. Maybe not. Right. So I don't know if there's some mixture between being a bleeding heart liberal and a total libertarian, because I'm kind of turning into that, you know, well, I'm like, stay the fuck away from me. Basically, just offer these like shit, basic medical things, shit, basic education. You're not allowed in my house. I'll pay you the bare but, minimum of what but I have. Benny, it's not like we're making it up. There's countries where it works. So it's not like, yes. it's not like, it's not, it's not true. It's not like it can't work. It, it, it can work. It just needs to but, be, it, I think what the, you get rid of special interest and, and like that would probably fix everything. I know that sounds crazy that one move could do it, but honestly, you, you get rid of special interest and maybe get rid of the electoral college. And I think we could have an entire country full of middle-class people. But I feel like the, the countries you're referring to didn't have like a hundred million members of its citizenry armed and against <laughs> everything that you want to do. You know what right. I mean? Like we are kind of unique in the way we built this country and the, the principles we put right. it on that are very antithetical to like Scandinavia. You know what I mean? Like as much as I would like to say, hey, just take Sweden's government, put it here. You know right. what I mean? It's not going to work, it, but it, just, it can't. There work. are models of what we're talking about, though, that, yes. w- that can work and they can work in yes. this country, but they're just not allowed to. Yeah. I mean, healthcare is a great example. Like, why can't we have health care? We pay so much goddamn money. So, so much goddamn money. Uh, it's insane. Even out of my 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 broke pocket. You know what I mean? Dude. What do we get from Patreon a month? <laughs> not enough. Not, not enough. enough to clip not your toenails, to these, my friend. Not to <laughs> these kids put these kids through the medical system and they're young still, you know, God knows. I haven't even broken any arms yet. I don't even know what's coming. You know, goodness. Uh, it's like you want to break an arm just to get your money's worth. Right. <laughs> Woo. Woo. All right. So we have Brian McTernan. And this, this is week. so good. This is such a good podcast, dude. It I, is really good. I mean, I'd like to call it the, um, you know, I, I thought I was going to geek out with him over over uh, recording stuff, yeah. but I didn't need to because he kind of gave God. like a really good layman's kind of overview to all of his techniques. And it's true. And then you talked about, you know, cool punk rock stuff. I was nervous about YouTube turning into like a tape op <laughs> episode. I'm always nervous of that. It could have yeah. happened. I even had a couple of questions I was going to ask him. I'm like, you know what? No, it doesn't matter. I'm the only one that cares what, what yeah. kind of board he has in his studio. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, maybe if you ask specifically, but yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Um, but yeah, this interview is awesome. I mean, it was funny, like, as we mentioned at the beginning of it, that you'll hear again, like, I had no idea if Brian is going to remember me really. Right. I like, you know, I played drums in a band that showed up at his studio in like 1998. Right. You know, it's a long fucking time ago. We, we were cool, you know, but I didn't, it wasn't like some thing we kept in touch. And then I got in touch with him again to hook up with Matt Squire to record the Killing Gift record. And that was the last time I spoke to him. And right. that was like the early 2000s. So I was like, some guys don't remember, you know what I mean? Like, that's just, they're, they're, there's people I knew way better than him who don't remember me. Right. So I, I, was, I wasn't expecting it. So his level of uh, retention for the stories and the whole process of doing our record was actually really nice for me. I was like, oh, cool. Like, oh, he was like, yeah, best buddies. He was buddies. all over it. It's he funny because that it. was the exact feeling that I had about Mike the week before. I was like, mm. I don't even know if Fat Mike remembers me anymore. Right. And like before you came on, all we did was talk about, talk shit about all the whatever, the stuff we'd done last Controversial time episode. I've been hit up a lot. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People being like, Benny, you have such patience. Yeah. So if you're a I've Brian been... fan, go back and listen to Fat Mike too. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, very different men. Let me tell you that. Very, very, different men. very, very different. Yeah. Well, let's get into it then. All right. Let's listen. It's going on Yeah, Brian, I really, I truly didn't know. I was like, I'm going into this interview being like, he might remember me. Oh my God. Not. No, I was, I was so psyched when we were going to, when those H2O shows were going to happen and we were going to play together. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's going to be fucking rad. It's been awesome. a long time. I mean, the funny thing is I, that little, um, when we, when we did the low end theory stuff in that house, that yeah. was such a whirlwind, like, time for me i remember all of it so well i mean it was just really crazy it's funny too because a lot of people bring up salad days to me and they're like oh you worked with maternin were you in this place were you in this place and i'm like no i don't know any of these places and it seems like i went to record with you in a like how long were you actually in that i was only in that i was only in that house for like eight months so it was okay um, it was um so i was in boston and uh like shit was going awesome and i was doing battery and i was in this rock band milltown that was signed to warner brothers and the studio was like going amazingly well and i made a mistake of going into business with these other dudes that tried to fuck me over and so in the course of like three months battery broke up milltown broke up and um, my business partners fucked me over. So I moved back to DC and literally had to just totally start over and like, didn't have any money to do that. So rented a little house with my now was my girlfriend. Then it's now my wife and a, a friend. And as you saw, you know, set the control room up in the living room and the drums (laughs) went in the basement and, and man, I did, in that little house, I mean, I did your stuff, but I did the Frodis and We Wash Our Weapons in the Sea record, Cave in Jupiter, Drowning wow. Man, um, The Explosion, Flash, Flash, Flash. Holy shit. Count Me Out. Um, the first time I recorded Strike Anywhere was in that house. Wow. Um, the Movie Life, This Time Next Year. I mean, 
Darkest Hours first record, um, Mark the Judas, Mile Marker Records, Jay Robbins did Engine Down there. I mean, it's fucking insane how many cool things happened in that little house so fast. Yeah, that is a prolific year. Oh, oh my God. It was crazy. Yeah. And then it went so well that I then saved up money and we bought a house and I built the building behind the house. And that that's where that was like, you know, the next step after the, the DC house. Interestingly, we were doing like a, I'm doing this new band, Be Well, and we were doing a photo shoot and we were right. by that house and went there oh, and really? took a picture outside. Cool. And it was kind of, it wasn't the hood back then, but it was like a rough around the edges. And now it's like, the, that house would be like a million bucks. Oh, it's, really? Yeah, it's like, the like where the like shitty laundromat is, is like some super like uppity, yuppie restaurant. <laughs> it's, what it's what neighborhood was that? What, like, I don't know what it's called. Um, it was like 16th. It was like 14th and, and Longfellow was the address and um, 1409 so it was, Longfellow. It was in D.C. It was in, in D.C. DC yeah. proper. It was yeah. in D.C. proper. Um, I can't, I, I don't re- remember. Actually, the guitar player from Be Well literally lives directly behind that house. Oh, really? Yeah, it's so, <laughs> so weird. But that was a, that was a, that was a really fun time. You know, I mean, I think I was, I was 21 or 22 then yeah and to us you were like you were like 45 years old to us (laughs) you know because i was there you know that was what 98 or 99 yeah 98 yeah i was 18 when i went there yeah and you know i didn't know much more than the fact that like i just got signed and i get to go record with the dude who recorded texas is the reason like right right like that i'm like oh shit and this guy was in ashes yeah so you know like when, when i got there it's funny when I was doing the research for this because yeah, in my, you know how it's like when you go back to your elementary school or something and you feel gigantic, right? but the building didn't actually change. Right. Um, Yeah. In my perspective, you were like 45 (laughs) seasoned music industry vet who I needed to like completely acquiesce Uh, to with everything. Cause I couldn't have been, you know, more green at that time. We were just fucking so stoked to be there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that was just a different, I mean, it was like, I mean, I think one thing people always thought I was older than I was because I did the Texas's reason EP when I was 18, you know what I mean? So like, you don't see, you see my name on a 108 record and you're not assuming that I'm like a 19 year old with a Mackie mixing board and two eight. No, no, no. <laughs> so it was, um, yeah, I mean, the part of the fun of that era for me was I was at a very similar place to all the bands, which was like, you know, coming up and we were all yeah, coming up right. together and it was, sure. it was, everybody was a similar age and it was like, um, it was just a, it was a wild, wild time. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you really had a, a you know, a hand in, in kind of building that scene that happened at that time. Um, I mean, sonically, for sure. Well, the, I, I was wondering, like, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think people don't quite realize that back then there weren't like a million young dudes with cool little studios that you could go record yeah, at. Right. I mean, it was yeah. like, I still had to have a two-inch analog tape machine and a big console and all the outward. Like it wasn't like you could just go buy a computer and a focus, right? 
adapter and be off to the races. You know, right. it was, um, and I think now it's, now it's great because there's so many people that you can go record with. But the thing is like, one of the things that I think that was good bands liked was that because we were all kind of coming from a similar place, I had a sense of what people wanted. And then yeah. I remember when ashes like went to record at this, like just like place that did like a bunch of hip hop and go, go right. and stuff. Yeah. I yeah, had to yeah. like bring records and be like, the drums need to sound like this. And the guitars <laughs> right. need to sound like it. And they'd be like, right. what the fuck is this? Yeah, you're right. Cause before that you wanted to go record it was still sort of like the 70s, 80s generation guys were running all the studios. It right. was like some dude named Keith yeah. with a mullet, right. you know, who happened to have the studio because he opened it in 78 and he was right. just like the only guy around. Right. Like that, that was yeah. definitely more common until, yeah, like you said, your generation of, uh, of producers came along. Yeah. How did you... Now, how did you get the Texas record? You know, I'm looking at this. I didn't like, get the Texas record. I mean, basically okay. what happened was it kind of all of the early records I did kind of happened in a similar way. Like the Texas thing was, I had known everybody in that the band except for Scoots. I don't know if I had, I met Scott, like, I think I met him then. But okay. Ashes so had Chris played through Ashes, like Resurrection. Yeah, like, like Ashes played yeah. with Resurrection and Norm was in Shelter. Right. And then Garrett was like a roadie for Split Lip. And um, right, right, Ashes right. played with Split Lip all the time. So like, we just had a relationship. And then when they had a new band and I had my studio, I think they paid me like $100. I think, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. And, and, and myself included, nobody had any idea that it was going to come out as as well as it did. And like, right. it's much more a testament to them <laughs> than it was to me because I, you know, I, I, I just had, I, at that time I was lit. I had a little studio in the basement of a house where I had six other roommates and wow. I, I was living in the, um, I had a mattress on the floor in the dining room and <laughs> it was like, you know, they, they came up just to do a demo and then it really came out awesome. And I had no fucking idea like what was going to come of it. And I didn't even know that they planned to release it until I got a call from Jordan Cooper from Revelation. Wow. And he was like, Hey, do you have the masters? And I was like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's so funny. So it was almost like this perfect pairing because you guys both sort of went on a trajectory right after that. Yeah. I mean, it was cool too, because it was like, it was like, they were fucking awesome. You know, they yeah, play sure. awesome. I think that a lot of people don't realize like how having great songs and being able to play them well affects the way it sounds. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but Chris Pretty Daly, funny, is, uh, yeah, yeah. Chris Daly just hits awesome. So it's uh, like, yeah, you know, you yeah. kind of just, and the other thing was, they were friends and they were really like kind to me. So I felt very comfortable. Like, and That's it was fun. low pressure because it was just a demo and was coming out better than anybody thought. Um, e e even the, the first record I did that year in Boston um, was Casser and Hike. And it was a, it right. was same situation where they came in to do a demo and it just turned out much better than, um, they thought, and it turned into the record. And the crazy thing was the first three months I was up in Boston, 
I literally did not record one thing. I was putting flyers everywhere. I was literally going to shows and like begging people to come record for free. And mm. I couldn't get a sniff. And then Castor and Hike, um, Rama Mayo, who had Big Wheel Recreation, just randomly stopped by our house one day and was like, oh, you have a studio? I have a band that needs to do a demo. And <laughs> then again, they played awesome. They had good yeah. sounds. Yeah, good I, band, yeah. You know, I didn't need to know as much as one would need to know with how bad bands are now. <laughs> well, I think it was Rick Rubin who admitted that all he does as a producer is pick great artists to work with. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it definitely helps to have songs. Right. You know, to have good songs. It certainly helps in the music industry, you know. It definitely goes well, <laughs> over the, a lot the, of people's the, heads. The funny thing, actually, is that I kind of, I realized, like, pretty early on that, that um the the songs being great and and really like developing the songs and doing really like great pre-production really does make the songs sound better so i sure. feel like a lot um i feel like i started getting really hands-on with bands and their songs and pre-production probably sometime a little bit after you were in um and it was like the thing that I was able to do that kind of then took the records to the next level. Like, cause I see. You, you run out of gas. I mean, there's only gear is not going to take that last 10% that takes it from like a cool record to an amazing record is always going to be the songs. I mean, it's, mm. it's, and so I got really heavily involved with bands with like pre-production and sometimes writing and, you know, working on the tunes and that, I feel like that really did help kind of made up for the fact that I didn't quite know what I was doing yet. Right. Now, um, for, now you talk about all this, like, you know, you were only 18. Um, so where did this knowledge of production and recording come from just from working on your own records and being in those bands and literally and did, just, and what did high school have to do with any of this? It sounds like not a lot. Well, no, the funny thing is, so Matt Squire, um, who you, you, we were talking about earlier was the drummer in ashes and he had right. an eight track in his basement. Okay. And then if the funny thing is in ashes and in battery, I was never the like recording guy in the band. I was oh, like, really? Matt yeah. was the guy in Ashes and Ken was the guy in Battery. And okay. um, and then Ashes went to Atlanta to record the last two songs that we would ever record. And just by chance, Matt's brother lived in Atlanta and okay. he left to go hang out with his brother. So for the first time in my entire life, I sat down at a console hmm. and like hit play and hit record and fucked with the faders. And I was like, this is it. <laughs> I fucking wow. love this. This hmm. is so cool. And, and then from that point on, I just was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And how, that was, that was 93. So, so how old are you then? I was 17. Okay. So I then dropped out of high school to do a battery tour and, um, and saved up some money. And then, um, bought some gear, used some of Matt's gear. And I mean, it was like, if you saw the setup that we recorded, like tech, <laughs> Texas, it's a reason it literally was a little Mackie mixing board. Okay. I had two ADATs. I had okay. one compressor and I had one <laughs> reverb unit. Wow. And I had just enough mics to mic a drum set. And that, oh my that, goodness. that, that was it. And, and, 
And, um, but I, and the thing about that time was that there was no internet. So it wasn't like, yeah, yeah. you know, now it's like, oh, how does, you know, Steve Evitz, Mike Kickstrom, like, oh, I'm going to go on YouTube and look. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know what I mean? Like, it was literally like Matt and I at first, just like in the basement moving shit around, like, you know, what happens if we put it here? What happens if we do this? And and then you start to like, you start to just figure it out. And, and, um, I mean, it was a, uh, it was a really, it was a wild time. And the crazy thing was, in a similar fashion to the, like, that, like, prolific DC year, the first year I was in Boston, I didn't record one thing for three months. And then Cass Iron Height came in, and within the end of that year, I did Cast Iron Hike, Texas is the Reason, Converge, Bane, Piebald, Cave-In, uh, Prima, 108, um, Promise Ring, like, Walleye. I mean, it was like zero to hundred, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and the bands were cool enough to make up for the fact that the recordings were just like, okay you know they sure, were like sure. possible it seems like you were predestined for sort of like this musical life a little being that you know mike is the singer of damnation and, yeah you know you got into it i mean really young right like you know your early teens um it, like do you remember the first thing that piqued your interest in like punk and hardcore was it something you heard at home how did you break uh, into that scene well so like my older brother mike he he had, um, he had his best friend's older sister was dating this guy that was in like a DC, like revolution summer era band okay. called at wit's end. And, um, he played my brother, a bunch of music. And at first we really got into, um, like the cure and the Smiths and echo and the bunny men and kind of new wave type stuff. Sure. And then one day that guy, this guy, Glenn brought my brother suburbia the movie oh, okay. yeah. and 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 he brought it home and we watched it and i was like that's it man like this is it so in like <laughs> fifth grade i was wearing like a trench coat and combat boots and i had i had this jean jacket with a big exploited punk snuck dead patch on the yes. back and we just got super hardcore into it and then out of the blue one day we're like i'm walking down the street in my super suburban neighborhood in in D, right outside of dc and i have a sex pistol shirt on and i have these and i'm 10 at the time i think wow 10. yeah and i have these jeans that i, I took two pairs of jeans and like cut both pairs together <laughs> and then like would put <laughs> yes. one pair on and then the other pair on fuck yeah yeah and uh-huh. i'm walking by this house and then i see this like skinhead guy walk out of his house and just yells at me Sex pistols are bollocks. <laughs> and I was like, what the absolute fuck? So it turns out that this like skinhead dude moved to my street. His dad was wow. like the ambassador from New Zealand. No shit. And he was this badass dude and he 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 became he like was on a mission to find music that I loved. So I, I would go to his house after school and he would play, at first he was playing me like GBH and Peter and the Test Two Babies and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. And then one day he was like, I got it. And he played me um, Seven Seconds, The Crew. And I was okay. like, 
holy fucking shit this is a it. classic this is yeah, it classic, so yeah. he got me that and agnostic front were like the first two things that i was like this is my shit and right so then my his his, his my parents were insane and he they let him start taking my brother and i to shows so <laughs> when i was 10 i went to my first like punk show Wow. And where I mean, was that at? It was at this place, Hung Jury Pub. Okay. And it was a fucking amazing show. It was Uniform Choice, wow. Soul Side, okay. and The Flaming Lips. What? Yeah. They opened and everybody sat down. <laughs> no shit. Wow. Are The yeah. Flaming Lips from DC even? No. I, I, no, I yeah, think they're I know, from right? Philly area, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so strange. What a yeah. great first show. For oh, me. my God. And I remember, I remember I did a, I, I wore a Sid and Nancy shirt. And the whole train ride there, my brother kept telling me, everybody's going to laugh at you. <laughs> <laughs> How much and older was Mike than you at that two, time? Two, two years. Two years, okay. And then I did my first stage dive. And it was like, it used to be like, you know, you'd have like the deep, crew up front singing along sure, and then you'd have sure. these killer circle pits yes. and i did a stage dive and i was so little they passed me like all the way around <laughs> right right the pit. so what was crazy was what came out of that summer was there was this whole big skinhead thing in dc right yeah. and there was this one guy mike mattingly who was like this ter- you know he was this like terrifying skinhead dude and that sounds used, like a great like skinhead name yeah it's just like the perfect skinhead name he used to put me on his shoulders and like put like you know like go in the pit and it was crazy so then he said to me like oh where are you going to school and i was like oh i'm going here and he was like oh my sister goes there you guys should hang out oh okay so i started dating his sister when i was in sixth grade she was in seventh grade wow. and she was like this rad like kind of like you know or a bomber jacket and fishnets and was yeah. like cool as shit. I can't believe you had a middle school like <laughs> punk rock royalty couple. That's fucking. Uh, I know. Well, so this is what was <laughs> this is what was crazy about it. So Mike Mattingly played drums in this band called Strength in Numbers. That was like this mm-hmm. kind of skinhead DC type band, and the guitar player was Ken Olden. Who, oh no shit! <laughs> so I used to go to her house after school and watch them practice. Oh, okay. And it totally shaped. I mean, from that point on, I had the bug about wanting to play. And, and, yeah. And he, he, like, he would just let me watch. And it was like, wow, I watched them write songs. I watched them rehearse. I watched them learn covers. And, and then Ken started, Ken Olden, the guitar player, started driving me home after practice because I was kind of on the way for him. Sure. Yeah. And one day he said to me, oh, I'm starting, like, a straight-edge band. And um, if you want to, like, come to my house and watch us practice, you you can do that, too. Okay, yeah. Which is kind of weird, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like you were just, like, a likable little kid, you know? Yeah. That, like, that people kind of just wanted you around. I'm sure yeah, you were fun. A, li- a, a little sure bit. So, I, so yeah. I would go to his house on Friday. Like, he'd pick me up from mid- middle school. And I would go to his house, watch them practice, stay over, and then we would all go to like the matinee hardcore show that weekend together, and then I would go home. Okay. So they were struggling to find a singer, so I started singing at practice. Oh, cool. And then they 100% intended to find a real singer, and they booked studio time to record a demo. 
And they went in and it was, I think it's possible. I don't know if this is actually true or not, or just something that's like folklore, but it was in a house that people say was Dave Grohl's house in Arlington. Okay. So we were recording with this guy, Barrett Jones, who was the sound man for Scream. Cool. Okay. And he had this cool, like, little eight-track reel-to-reel setup, and he did really good recordings. And so they recorded, and the whole time we were rec- they were recording, he was talking to me, and he was like, who sings? And I was like, well, I sing at practice, but... um. <laughs> but but they're going to get a real singer. singer. <laughs> right, right, right. So right at the end, he was like, hey, dude, just go out there and sing what you sing. Okay. I yeah. practiced. So I went out and it came out awesome. And it sounded wow. really good. And then the funny thing about it was because my brother and I had been, I mean, at that point, I I was 14. I was in eighth grade. And my brother and I had been going to shows and we were so little that everybody knew us. So right. I gave the promoter at the Safari club, the demo, mm-hmm. and he put us on the, the next show coming up was sick of it all. And that was our, Holy that, was shit. Our, that was our first show. Yeah. Talk about a trial by fire. Oh my God. It was fucking crazy. And then I don't know what made me have the kind of gall to do this, but they, um, I wanted to write my own lyrics. Okay. <laughs> and they, they were they were not feeling that. So we broke up. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah. And um and artistic dispute at fourteen, man. Oh my god. And then <laughs> oh, it's such a long story, but the way that yeah, the way that I ended up <laughs> meeting Matt Squat so okay, so at that point I didn't play anything. I only sang in battery and and, okay. and then we only played two shows and then the band was over. So <laughs> the drummer from Damnation and I stole his parents' car <laughs> and at like two o'clock in the morning, we get pulled over on Connecticut Avenue in DC. And, and like at this point I got to high school and was like the biggest fuck up you can imagine. Like right. skipping like- school, getting in fights, doing graffiti, like just out of fucking control. And okay. so the cops pull us over Dave tells the cops that he's his brother. <laughs> okay. And they don't totally believe him, but they don't arrest us. And they tow the car and it's like two o'clock in the morning. Okay. Late and no cell phones. Of course. No phone in sight. And Dave's like, I know this kid who lives like a couple blocks away. So we show <laughs> up at this house, ring the doorbell. What? <laughs> yeah. And this 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 kid Noah and his his parents come to the door. We go in. Everybody's awake. We call our parents. We get picked up. It was okay. Shameful. <laughs> Very soon after that, I really lost my mind, and my parents ended up putting me in a hospital for a period of time. Okay. And while I was there, I started playing guitar. There was like a guitar in the unit. Oh, no and so I just was writing and writing and writing. And actually, by the time I got out of there, I was like pretty like, you know, not good, but like good enough. Hmm. And then, so I get out and like the first how, show. How long, were, how long were you in that? I was like, there for a month. Okay, I was there month. for a month. So very soon after I got out, I went to this Fugazi show, this like legendary Fugazi show on the mall in DC. And oh, I yeah, just, yeah, yeah. I just happened to bump into Noah, who 
<laughs> I had met when we rang his doorbell at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and he says to me like, Oh, I heard you quit battery or you're not doing battery. And I'm like, no. And he's like, well, I have this band I'm doing with this guy, Matt Squire. Okay. And you should come try out to sing. So like hmm. we all hop on the Metro and go take the Metro to Matt Squire's house. So I can like hear the music, you know, there's no MP3s back then. Sure, so, right. yeah, no. um, so we go to Matt Squire's house and that's when I first met Matt Squire and they played me the music and I was like, I like this, but I can't sing over this. So maybe I'll play guitar. And like that was, yeah, it was like very like what they were doing at the time was um, very like DC kind of, you know, influence stuff like and um it was just like not you know i had never done anything except scream in a hardcore band so yeah right right so i decided i played guitar we got a um a a singer this this woman elena and that band started as rise and we played two shows we played this like and our second show was like was shelter and was super awesome that was 1991 so i was like i was 14 still and then like a week after the shelter show noah got struck by lightning and died get the fuck out of here i swear to god yeah so fucked up so yeah so so like noah was like one of my closest friends at that time, we had like really bonded over music and that's how I knew Matt Squire and we were doing this band and it was going well. And it was like totally crushing. Yeah. So we all took yeah. the summer apart. That was like in May of 91 and came back together. Like when school started the next year and decided to continue the band, but not call it rise and not to add a new member. So our second guitar player moved to bass and I stayed on guitar and we renamed the band ashes. And that was ashes holy shit that's an insane an insane tale it was (laughs) (laughs) again it's it's kind of the thing i alluded to like you sort of have that um almost like a john joseph like a dc version of like the john joseph story you know what i mean like like there from the get like you were you were bred from the uh from the Phoenix of hardcore. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You know what I mean? You stick around long enough to have some interesting things happen, right? Yes. Yes, that's a fact. And like, uh, so, I mean, w- do you kind of remember, like, do you know exactly like what you were sort of like rebelling from? Or was it all kind of for you coming from within? I think it was all coming from within. I mean, I was like, like, we had like some a lot of mental illness in my family, you know, yeah, mine, and, and mine too, mine too. Like, you know, my brothers had, my brother and I kind of reacted to it totally differently where he like, he really kind of withdrew and was like internalized it. And I just yes. kind of like was insane and just right, right. off the walls. And my, like, you know, my mom had been a nun and there's a lot uh-huh. of like Catholic guilt and my dad's like father had died when he was 10 and grew up really poor and, and has like, like PTSD from Vietnam and pretty severe o- OCD. So okay, we had a, it was not a happy house. I mean, right. it was like, I literally would like not come home for days at a time and, and was just out doing graffiti, getting arrested, you know, hanging out with lots of girls and just 
a total fucking mess. Did you have like the freedom to do so, or were you like taking I mean, shit I, every time? I had you got the freedom back? to do so because I was out of control, and it right, was right, right, it wasn't yeah. like my parents were like, "Yeah, go, um, you know, get arrested for stealing spray paint," and you know that's fine. <laughs> yeah. It was just like w- literally, they, I think they just didn't know what to do, and yeah, just, just reacting at that point, and not even just ignoring. You know, on a certain oh, level. Okay. I mean, I yeah, think that, sure. like, my house was so out of control. I would, like, spray paint on the walls. My dad would leave, not talk to me about it, leave notes around that said, don't write on wall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, you could take that one to the couch for I sure. I mean, like, pretty I'll, easily. I'll, yeah. this is a totally insane just to say, but I used to steal my parents' car when I was in, like, seventh and eighth grade. Yeah, And instead of, like, trying to do anything about it, my dad put, like, a padlock around the steering wheel. Gotcha. Like, In- so, instead I mean, of, that, like, talking to you about oh, it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were rowdy, you know. It was, you know, it was a very crazy... It was a crazy time, and, and, and I... I don't. I don't know that I felt like I was rebelling at the time. I just felt like nothing fucking mattered, so I was going to do whatever the fuck I wanted. And right. thankfully, I was straight edge, so it was yeah, like, sure. I mean, if you had taken all of that shit that I was like had bottled up and was coming out and, yeah. and coupled it with like drugs and alcohol, I would have been be dead. I mean, you know for what, sure. man. It's, I, I've said it to so many, I've literally never been straight edge, you know, from the second I got into punk and hardcore. Right. I had discovered some stuff even before that and never fully connected with it. And I even, you know, I used to play in Ensign for a while and I knew right. all those guys. And I got asked once to be in a band called Weapon X, which was their straight edge hardcore band. Okay. And I was like, guys, like, I'm happy to do this. I love all of you. I love the music, but you know, I'm not straight edge, right? Right. And like, what? <laughs> fucking Benny Hardcore, Ben Lemma's not fucking straight. Like, I took so much shit for it. But honestly, all through the years of, like, doing shows, I stood up for Straight Edge, like, a lot. And I right. still do because yeah. of exactly what you said. It's like, there's well, the, a lot of fucked up shit for kids to get into. Well, the cool and thing... If, yeah, cool, if you're... I'm sorry, yeah. I, I, the cool thing about Straight Edge, I mean, for me, was that it was cool. You know what I mean? Right, it was like exactly, yeah. I'll never forget, like, we, I, we went... The day I became straight edge at the time, I'm not straight edge now, but, but, um, at, at the, <laughs> we went to see Gorilla Biscuits play at the Safari Club. And we're all like, I'm with a crew of my friends and we're all on the train home. And one of my friends was like, what do you guys think? Of, are you guys straight edge? <laughs> and, right, right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm straight edge. And that was it. You know, it was like, <laughs> right. That was, Just, uh, and I mean, the, the funny thing is, I, I'm not straight edge now, but I still love straight edge. I'm not one of these yeah, guys at all. Same. That's like, yeah, same. I'm not like, oh, that stupid thing I did when I was a kid. Like, I no. love straight edge. I love the culture. I love yeah. the look. I love the sound. I yeah. love what it meant in my life. I love the people that I met doing it. And I mean, it's like, I definitely get, like, when Battery, because um, Battery was a straight edge band, although we never sang about it. And the funny things we never sang about it, but all the merch said it. So we're like, yeah, was there an, there was an X battery X period. No. Oh, I'm sure. Cause we had like <laughs> shirts with like, yeah, we yeah. had this super embarrassing shirt with like a, 
a fist busting through the map of Europe <laughs> and it said we're back and it had a big X on it. <laughs> and it was like, it was like, I mean, I, I don't know, like, like, so it's interesting for me now because I don't, I don't want to be anything but like real, you know? So sure. when battery is playing, especially at shows where people are really like super into it, I felt that it was important to explain that okay, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. straight edge, but, and like the lens that what these songs mean to me now is different. You know what I mean? Like, right. And but, I, but they're I think, not unimportant. They're just from a different perspective. Totally. Totally. Yeah, and, sure. and, and I, and it's cool because I think that people are, you know, I'm sure that some people are, think it's lame or I'm a sellout or whatever, but like, I fucking love straight edge. I, I am proud of the time that I was straight edge. And I also feel like I got to a point in my life where it didn't have the same meaning. You know, I'm like mm, yeah. in the studio all day and I'm married and I'm like super, you know, I, I, my life is different. And like part of what drew me to hardcore and straight edge for that matter was living for your own values. Right. Yes, sure. And I definitely felt like I'm this calling myself this thing because I don't want to let other people down, and it doesn't mean yeah. doesn't mean that to me anymore. And I'm ready for you know another chapter. So. Yeah, it's funny when uh, punk rock no longer requires independent thought, right? Like, right. <laughs> like you just have to be this. After right. 30 years, you're not allowed to grow. Right. You're not allowed to think anything else, read anything new. Like the thing that you were tied to when you were 17, you got to die die on that cross. It's just well, not. It's not real. Yeah. And the the thing is too, for some people, it still means the same thing. And that makes me so fucking stoked. You know what I mean? Yeah, even better. Even better. Yeah. Like my brother is so fucking into it. You know what I mean? It's like still just as meaningful for him today as it was then. So I think that's awesome and I'm cool with it. And how cool is it that like some weird subculture reappropriated the triple X? You yes. Know? I yeah. mean, come on. Like, like that's a hard thing to tackle and reappropriate. And they I know. totally did it. <laughs> it's big time. So I wanted to talk a little, you know, I know we talked about it briefly years ago, but you sort of have one of those like fabled, I was on a major label and they like basically shelved our entire project story. Yes. Um, like what exactly, I don't remember the details, but I remember it being like a pretty fascinating thing. And at the time you kind of feeling like a sort of blanket rejection of that, that whole industry. Can you, can you kind of like talk, talk to me about that a little? Yeah. So we, so after ashes broke up, Matt Squire and I started this band called Milltown, And it was right. like in that era where every band was getting signed and it was like, yeah, right. and I was 19 at the time. And like, we, we had only played a handful of shows, and um, do you know Jake from Cast Iron Hike? Have you ever met him? No, I have some Cast Iron Hike music in my collection. But okay, well, so he guys, actually so. does um, that Disgraceland podcast. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And he's rad. And he, we, we, as I said before, they were the first band I recorded in Boston, and then we we ended up moving in together, and we're roommates and he was going to this orange nine millimeter show. And I said awesome. to him, Hey, I'm going to give you this Milltown demo. If Mike Gitter's there, their A&R guy, give it to oh, him. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it just so happened that Mike Gitter was there and Jake huh. gave him the demo. And 
Mike called me the next day and was like, I love this. This is amazing. And by our next show, a whole bunch of labels flew in and we made a lot of mistakes. I mean, like it's, it's funny when I look back now, like we only had like nine songs written. We had probably only played a dozen shows. We didn't have a manager. Not that you need to have a manager, but we were not. Ex- I mean, Matt and I were 19. Like, we're yeah, not, not. Once you get into that major label stuff, too. Yeah. And so, like, we, you know, we flew out to LA and we met with all these people and we did the, one of those, like, weird showcases in our rehearsal room. Uh, and, the worst. Like, all of the worst <laughs> shit you can do. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. um, but the biggest mistake that happened was <clears throat> we, ended up hiring this producer that was fucking awful. And oh, okay. like, we didn't like any of his records, but you know, A&R people can be very um, persuasive in like, they basically said to us, well, look, Brian, cause I had been recording all the demos and they sounded right. very cool. Sure. Brian's already got like the sonic landscape of what this is supposed to sound like down and then we're going to get someone else to mix it so what we really need is a producer that can like take the vocals to the next level and that argument made a whole lot of sense to me right yeah sure sure. so we met this guy toby wright who had done like alice in chains and kiss and just a bunch of vocally driven you know kind of stuff and he came out, he came to a show, he was super positive. I mean, it seemed like like a lot of the things, like we wanted to record live and we wanted it to be kind of raw and we wanted to have a lot of energy. And, you know, I mean, I've been in producer meetings where I feel like, you know, you, you want to make the band have you kind of tell them sometimes <laughs> things they want to hear. <laughs> yeah. And we basically yeah, just... trying to get the job, right? <laughs> we picked the wrong guy. And what yeah. happened was he first came out to do pre-production and then we were going to record and in like pre-production was a joke. He didn't have any ideas. He didn't have, we were just kind of like recording the songs and he'd be like, Oh, maybe put an octave here. You know, like kind of my idea of pre-production is like tearing the songs apart and flying, turning the bridge into a chorus and really going, you know, making the magic happen. But none of someone, if someone doesn't say, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Right. It's not fucking pre-production, man. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that, but I'm going to have to... I think it's a Tom Petty, so you just got to quote him when you all say right. it. Yeah. Well, so then we're doing pre-production, and all of a sudden, he comes back to the practice space and is like, well, listen, I know we're supposed to start recording next week, but I have to go finish the, lean, the, the Jerry Cantrell album. He's just oh. got out of rehab. So okay. we'll push the recording back. You guys can write... Blah, blah, blah. And the whole time he had said, like, I don't want to use a click and I want to keep it raw and all this shit. So he goes and does this record and we meet back at the studio that's like $2,500 a day. And he's got this stupid idea that he wants to move the drums to a different room for every single song. And... And you Um, know how long it takes to get drums set up, right? And then he drops on our drummer the first day. Oh, yeah, yeah, we need to use a click. And it was like, wait, you told us we weren't going to, we had never, I mean, we had never played with a click before. And like back then, it was not 
like it is no, now where everybody's no. like um it was no, controversial to use sure. a click or not to use a click. Your, your boy, Matt Squire, is the first one to make me do it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we, so we go in, and all of a sudden, he's like, this, there's no chorus. You know, like, all oh, of the shit that, all of a sudden, that, yeah. that could have come up in pre-production right. is now he's dropping on us. Oh, like, one of our best songs. Oh, I think we should make this mellow and do it with a sitar. And we were like, mm. oh, my God. And then the other thing was... He fucking loved Matt Squire, and he fucking hated me. Like, oh shit! Oh, okay. And the thing just about like Matt, a per, just a personal thing, or like Matt is like Matt and I were an incredible team in that. Like I was like always the guy that was like I feel like the vibe should be this, and Matt was the guy that was like really this like musical genius type guy, and we mm-hmm. the combination was pretty incredible but it was a combination where we really balanced each other out right sure and this dude was just like this brian guy doesn't know how to play solos (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna focus and so he kind of split us apart and then the other thing about recording one song at a time and then moving the drums for every song just fuck no we were we were not getting there was no vibe yeah everybody was miserable the label ended up coming out was like, this is terrible. This record oh, sucks. The demos are better. So we pulled the plug and decided to take like over the Christmas break, a, a step away from the record and then come back. And we were going to literally start recording over with the same dude. Okay. And he was going to have a new approach and positive. And we got like four days into this second session and one day i walked into the control room and he was packing up all his shit and we were like we were like what's going on and he's like oh i'm leaving to do the corn record (laughs) oh my god we were like holy fuck so yeah what a piece of work yeah so so we left and what was sad about it was the label was actually great and they were like oh okay they were like listen we were like, we can't fucking record with these people. This do these people that don't fucking know who the fuck what. Like, I wanted to record John and Yellow, yeah. And I had been pushing for that the whole time, and finally they were like, "Well, we can meet, you can meet him, but if you guys want to record with one of these guys, it's not as mainstream. You're gonna have to write some more like hits, okay? Because we're we're not gonna." you want to go that direction we can't rely on the producer for that basically right 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 right. so we ended up i mean and it was just a lot of stress i mean we were on salary and like yeah it was like you think that's like gonna be awesome but it just adds a lot of pressure sure we ended up going into um my studio and kind of blocked it out and we're trying to write hits you know (laughs) right right and the stress kind of caught up with everybody and long story short, it ended up with like a pretty, like, like an actual, like physical band altercation. Mm. And we all left that night. And uh, I don't know that some of us talked again until we played a reunion show in October. And that was the first time some of us had talked in like, 20, 20 like years. last October. Yeah. Oh, wow. wow. So literally like people left the studio that day and 
never saw each other, never talked to each other, never. It was it. It was like done and super done. And then, Man, what was that guy's name? Mike Wright? Is that what you said? Toby, Toby Wright. Toby Wright. Let's put that on wax. He, he, this, this is his fault. Yeah, it's his fault. What's too bad is we actually met with John and Yellow. And he would have been perfect. I, and, yeah, I was just thinking that. Like you couldn't, I couldn't think of a more different approach well, because, uh, than John and Yellow, and how perfect he would have well, been. Well, the, for the you thing guys. about it is, there was a lot of there was like a lot of personalities in the band, and you have to keep in mind, like Matt and I were nineteen, and everybody else was like twenty six, twenty seven. So, right, right. You bring a person in that is like not like a father figure type producer who's like splitting everybody up and kind of putting ideas in different people's head and kind of casting certain people out. Mm -hmm. And it's just a disaster where I feel like a John and yellow or um, the other guy that actually became a good friend of mine later in life is that I wanted to do it with Mike Barbiero. I don't know if you know who that is. Not sure. No, he's like, he's, he like mixed, uh, Appetite for Destruction and, and oh, Justice okay. for All. But he also mixed like the first Civ record and cool. um, did like Whitney Houston. Like he had mixed a Snapcase record that I recorded and we became friends. Um, and he was this like, is this like soulful, deep, passionate, caring person that has no ego. Uh, right. Had we gone in with somebody like that, it would have been great. And there are asked, there are parts of me that are, I'm glad that it didn't happen that way because I wouldn't have had the production career that I had. And honestly, I left that Milltown record feeling like, wow, I know who I don't want to be as a producer. (laughs) Oh, I see. You know what I mean? So like, I, I do think a lot came from, came from that. You know, kind of talking on that, you know, I know you've had, especially as part of the impetus for starting Be Well and stuff is to, you know, be able to more sort of safely, I guess, express yourself and the things you might have not right. been able to be expressive before in some of your old formats. Like when you were producing all through the years, now having that knowledge, do you think your empathy to kind of pain and suffering sort of helped you in producing artists, like kind of tapping into things that they were feeling because you have had those feelings or still have those feelings? I definitely think so. And, um, I think it's, it's, I think that, I mean, the amount of the like amazing artists that I've worked with who have like mental health issues is like, is is pretty startling. It's staggering. And, um, and I think that like my kind of understanding of like patience for some of the obsessiveness and compulsivity of like just how people are with their own art. I mean, it made mm. always made sense to me. And um, I feel like kind of having a barometer when people weren't being their true selves because of my kind of inner knowledge of what they we're going through let right. me really push people with their lyrics to like show more of themselves. And, um, yeah, I do think it helped. I mean, I think that there are times where like, I feel like, like on a personal level, because I was so young when I was producing, um, early on, I feel like I didn't share 
enough of myself at times because mm. I felt like having, you know, this young guy producing your record to begin with, commanding the respect of the room was hard. Sure. So I felt like if these people knew how kind of fucked up I felt inside, mm. then they might not want to trust me um, to do that. And I, I do feel like that, um, that led to a much bigger kind of emotional, you know, break later on in life. Um, I see. Yeah. And uh, honestly, like, I just kind of like, you know, I self medicated <laughs> with, pouring myself into other people's pain and art and, mm. um, you know, and then that worked well for a really long time until like there was an era probably like in the mid two thousands when I think like, as people stopped buying CDs and people and the industry was kind of panicking and there was this like, just bands were like needed new material so much faster and bands yeah, started coming right. in like without the songs written, without being able to play them without like the yeah. records started to become like more of a vehicle to tour rather than like the touring as a vehicle yes. to support the art. And yes, yes. it's slowly like, you know, by like 2013, 2014, like the, um, <clears throat> I just felt like, you know, you know, when the draft is in the studio, it's super fucking inspiring. And sure. Right. And then when some other bands, I'm not going to name show up and, <laughs> and don't have the songs written, can't play. And I'm sitting there playing all the guitars on the record. Yeah, and I'm writing yeah. the lyrics and I'm doing, I just felt like I'm a babysitter. I'm giving up my whole life to like do this. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel important. Gotcha. And yeah. I also felt like, like, so I think the guy, Mike Barbiero, I mentioned earlier, he yeah. said something to me when he was mixing the Snapcase record that changed my life as a producer, which was I, they were like torturing him with changes, you know, sitting in the back of the room, do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. And he was so patient with them. And we had lunch one day. I was like, man, I would fucking kill them if they were like, <laughs> right. And he was like, Brian, you have to keep in mind that, these guys, even if everything goes right, will only do this a handful of times in their entire life. Yeah. Where you're going to do it 10 more times this year. It's their record. Just, it takes so much less time to try their idea than it does to talk them out of it. Wow. And, and I thought about that all the time. And yeah, yeah. I got to a point where I started to feel like, you know what? If I... I'm not 110% in passion and heart. It's not fair to have bands come and have me be responsible for gotcha. this yeah. thing. That's so important. Sure. So I, because I'm an idiot, I kind of <laughs> overreacted and like just totally stopped. I don't I, think you're an idiot. You're emotional. Yeah. yeah. Well, so an idiot. my, an idiot. my reaction was to <laughs> kind of go totally nuclear and yeah, I sold the building that the studio was in. I got a job not doing it and totally stopped doing music entirely. What and, year was uh, that? 14? 2000. Yeah. I think it was 2013. So interestingly, the last record I did before I stopped, I, 
was Turnstile Nonstop Feeling, which was oh, like okay. good record. Yeah. A good record, amazing guys, exactly yeah. what I kind of like want out of a record and out of yeah. people. Yeah, so it was yeah. like funny because it's like I had made this decision. I had just taken the other job, but I was like still doing this record, like helping them because they weren't they weren't popular. I mean, they weren't big yet and didn't have yeah, I right. was just I loved it and wanted to help with it. And did um, you view that as kind of like your swan song at the time a little I bit? I mean, I don't think I thought about it that clearly. I just like I literally loved the band and just yeah, thought it would sure. be really fun. And and then um and actually that year, the last the I had a handful of projects. Like I did the Angel Dust A D record that year mm-hmm. and um the fireworks um Right, yeah. Their last so even up until the end, there were moments that were just magical and people that I loved being around. But then the stuff that wasn't was so bad. I felt like it was like, you know, I just felt like, what, it was like, like collecting cheating. a check kind of, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. Like I felt like I, like I'm doing a bunch of stuff I don't care about because I have this studio and I have to keep the lights on kind of. Right, and, right. and then the records that I really liked, like Angel Dust, I mean, the budget was like, I mean, really low. I mean, I mean like, right. just, you know, the things that I was happy doing, I couldn't, like, I had a daughter and a house and responsibilities. Like, I couldn't just be like, I'm going to record all these, you know, fun bands and not make anything. So I had to to, to make it work, had to do some stuff that yeah. I wasn't feeling. And long story short, I ended up, I left, I took this job, and that was kind of the beginning of like maybe like for the darkest years of my life. Wow. I, I mean, I can understand the instinct to purge. It's like personally, I, I can't make a major um, like left or right turn in my life without sort of one of those major purges. I, I don't have the like emotional wherewithal to take things step by step and in right. stride. Like it takes right. a bomb to right. be able to do anything. So I, I fully understand that. Um, now what, like, what, what did you get into? Um, well, so like I took afterwards. this, I took this job. So I have always loved like construction and architecture and things like that. Like I, oh, okay. I, um, I'd always built the studios myself. And then when the music industry, like, took an absolute nosedive. Yeah. I started like buying houses and fixing them up and selling them and doing that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So to supplement like that, the, for the fact that budgets were like 25% of what they had been and my expenses were higher. <laughs> so did you have any um, background in that stuff or you just, just no, jumped into just, it kind of just always kind of like, you know, like even my, my, first studio it's like my wife and I were like hanging the drywall and doing that right. kind of shit. So, yeah, yeah. um, but so I, I, I applied for this job as of like a project manager for a pretty big construction company that was in the area and I got hired. And then like within six months they made me the COO and I was wow. like run, running this pretty big, um, yeah. So Crazy. it was, um, I mean, the the problem is that, man, I mean, you know, I had just spent 20 years, like, literally feeling like everything I'm doing is, like, the most important thing to someone, you know? Yeah, sure. And also 
having so many like colorful people in and out of my life on a day to day yes. basis. Yes, yes. Um, when all that was gone, I also realized that um, the fact that I, my entire like social network were kind of like, I hate to call them clients, but bands that I worked with in the studio. Oh, and right. sure. Because I never really shared with them like some of the darker aspects of my inner monologue, mm-hmm. they had no idea, and I then didn't feel comfortable now talking about it for a whole different reason, you know. Because, right. and I just like I was just basically like working this job that felt totally meaningless, surrounded by people that I not only didn't, res- I mean people that I, I didn't like and didn't respect. And I tried my best to try and turn it into something that felt like it mattered, but it just didn't. And the only thing it was, was a paycheck and I don't care about money really. So it was the least rewarding thing. I felt like I was alone all the time. So like all the shit that I had buried, you know, before constructively, I had no escape from. And, I um, see. and like I just like stuck with your own head scenario. Like, oh, abs- absolutely. Like yeah, I, yeah. and, and I was driving like hours and hours and hours and like had no connect connection to like all these wonderful people I'd been, you know, talking to every day my whole life. I had no, right. you know, I wasn't a part of their life. I wasn't part of like, you know, not that they like rejected me. It's just like, I wasn't like involved in their records and I wasn't, in, you know, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, um, I don't totally know. I mean, it's hard to like, look back and go, at what point did, did I realize that something was like really wrong? But I did find myself like just basically doing anything I could to try and block out this like noise that was building. And, um, I mean, at first it was like, you know, probably drinking more than I should have. And, but I literally would come home and I was just so numb from like, kind of trying to like, not think this shit that I just wasn't like engaged with my wife and my daughter, the way that like I had been and wanted to be. And, um, and like, Oh my God, just not doing music. I mean, it's like, you know, like it just left a hole in my heart that was like, yeah. Unexplainable. Um, and I really didn't realize, I knew that it, I was like not a hundred percent. Okay. But I really didn't, I really didn't process like how bad it had gotten until I, I, um, we, we ended up getting this offer to go and do like a festival in Europe with battery. Okay. And <clears throat> I agreed to do that. And out of the blue one day, um, Ken Olden, the guitar player, sent me a, a song, and I hadn't written anything of my own in 20 years, literally wow. 20 yeah. years. That's crazy. Um, I'd written with bands, I, you know, sure, but it's a totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so he, I, got this, I got this email at like 6 o'clock in the morning with this song, Unexpected, and I literally sat down, and I, like, wrote the lyrics and the vocals in, like, three minutes, like, wow. so fast. It's just, like poured out of me. And then as we started, like, and it was pretty dark. I mean, I, 
Sure. I the lyrics were dark and and uh, I um uh, I'm trying to think of the way to say this when we were leading up to doing that tour and having that song and all of that, I just felt so much more connected to the world all of a sudden, like my wife and my daughter. And I had all these things that I was looking forward to and like people that I was connecting with that I hadn't connected with for a long time. And I just started writing and writing and writing and writing and just, it kind of poured out of me. And really it was, um, I don't know if you know, Paul Levitt, uh, He's yeah. a producer. He did like All Time Low and Dangerous Summer. He's really okay. he's one of my closest friends. But I started sending him some of these demos, and he literally called me and was like, "Dude, are you okay?" Like, <laughs> and <laughs> right, um, right, right. And it was like a good wake up call because it's like, yeah, when the same things keep coming out and keep coming out, and then the amazing thing was I I married my high school sweetheart. And cool. we've been together forever. And um, awesome. my wife kept saying to me, you need to quit the job, your job, and you need to do music. Like, Oh, really? She saw it too. This is, yeah. So, and she was amazing. And then we did the battery tour. Did she it was, see it way before you did? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Definitely Normally did. do, right? <laughs> and we did the battery tour and it was like the best experience of my life. Like, wow. it was fucking unbelievable. And my, the shows were incredible and people were like, um super into it and then the thing that was amazing was like we had done this song that was super like i mean different than what i had been writing about when i was 18 sure. or 19 yeah, 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 yeah. and it was very personal and like so many people came up to me and said oh my god that song means so much to me and all of a sudden i started thinking like i need to do that like i need this in my life like so badly and um and really, I didn't intend, like, my goals with Be Well, um, literally, I was just like, I need something where I can write, and I need to have things on the horizon to look forward to. Yeah, like, yeah, sure. Sounds simple. That's it. That's, like, really all I, all I really wanted to come from it, and... Um, and I just kept writing and writing. And I, I just made a commitment to myself that I was going to write something every day, no matter what. Cool. And the way to do it. I, I literally just, I, I did, I decided that I was going to like, I was going to write and I wasn't going to listen back to anything until later. Okay. Because I think all the time about like how many amazing like songs and riffs and things like that are like some dude like lying on the couch playing some, you know, like smashing pumpkins. Like I might play that, but I don't know that I would play that by itself and go, this is so fucking good (laughs) that I'm going to bring it to the band and we're going to turn it into a song. Right. Like, Uh so ultimately what I decided to do was just either write or pick up the guitar or pick up the bass or like, do something different every day. And I did a lot of stuff where I would like tune the guitar to different things and write with capo in different positions and just write just like for the sole purpose of like expressing myself and not, not to have it be a band or get big or whatever, just like to have an outlet. And, um, awesome. And then all of a sudden I woke up one day, I'm like, Holy shit, 
I have a lot of songs <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I want to make a record. And that's kind of, you know, how Be Well started. And here you are. Now yeah. you're in a new band dealing with new band shit. Yeah. That's fun, right? Um, <laughs> well, the good thing, the good thing is, is that fortunately everybody in Be Well is super fucking cool and yeah, super experienced. Right. And yeah. it's funny because people will say all the time, like, oh, it must be so hard to be like, start a new band when you're older. And like, yeah, I mean, they're like, it's harder in the sense that like, we have responsibilities Right. But it's easier in the sense that, like, we're not all broke. Yeah, We've right. been through all this shit so many times that nobody gives a fuck about anything except the music and the community around the band. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like you can actually have a warm dinner and then go to practice. Like it's Exactly. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, the, like, everybody's, like, super grounded and super realis- realistic. And I think that we're all in such similar places in life where it's like, wow, like... We did not expect people to like react to the band the way it's like gone well. And, yeah, um, yeah. and the guys are so good too. It's just like, it's just like, I kind of feel like it, lucky, you know, it's like to write all this shit and then have these dudes that can make it actually sound like it makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think all the things you said are what makes it good. You know, you have all that experience. It's not coming from a place of like, yo, we all have names. So let's get this band big or something. And then you have a very real and cathartic reason for doing what you're doing. And that's the thing, as you know, as well as anyone, if people are going to connect to something, they're going to connect to the honesty. They're going to connect right. to the feeling, you know, more so than like, oh, listen to this guy from uh, Fairweather rip fucking this. You know, right. like it's it's like a whole package. So I think it's translating pretty well. I think the stuff's great, man. I'm, I'm into it. Thank you. Well, the thing the thing for me that is 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 that like the dudes, like I think like everybody involved is like really focused on enjoying. And nobody's cool. talking about like the next record and getting right, big right, and right. getting this and getting that. And it's like everything that happens is like, you know, we're kind of like on borrowed time a little bit. The other thing is that um, they're like super good guys. And then EVR, who's putting the record out here, they've been like, they're like family for all of us. Yeah, you know, sure. like, like Equal Vision, Bane, um, Bane and Fairweather and Converge were all on EBR. Yeah, and then right. I produced a million tons of stuff. Yeah. A, a million records for them. And the, um, it's like, like I, the thing that I'm proud of with it and that I like about it is that I like, it's in no way anybody trying to like, we didn't make some like throwback record where we're trying to like get back to our former glory you know, right, like, right, 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 like, right. like, it's not like this old school hardcore, like, tra- like, it's like a record that just makes a whole lot of fucking sense musically. I feel like if yeah. you know where we come from, it feels to me like uh, honest and authentic. And like, like what I like about the record too, is that for me, it's like a pretty emotionally heavy record, Yeah, both good and bad, you know, but I feel like it's also like 
energetic and fun to listen to. So it's yeah, not like, sure. it's not like you have to be some like gloomy fucker to be able to enjoy it. Like it still has got wow, like yeah, moshes yeah. and sing-alongs and sure. breakdowns and sing catchy parts. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's cool. It feels like, you know, I don't, I don't, what I like about it is that I don't think anybody's going to listen to the Be Well record and think that we didn't pour our hearts and souls into it. I think yeah, that right. we're not like the 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 motivation. I think is hopefully clear that it was for the love of music and the love of the community around the music. Yeah, it seems to be, man. I think it's pretty well represented. Um, now, I, there's something I need to ask because it's just too much fun. In, yes. all, in all your years producing bands, and of course you don't have to name names, you don't have to name a band because I know where that would put you. Mm-hmm. Who or what was like the biggest rock star kind of piece of shit move you've ever seen? Uh, or a top three, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's like rock star piece of shit. I mean, I had some pretty good stuff, but that, like there was a band. I'll never forget this band. They, okay. they they came into the studio and like the day that they came in, the label called me and was like, yeah, there's some like rumors that this guy, singer guys like using drugs. And we just wanted to put that on your radar and, you know, you know, whatever. So the, the okay. band shows up, they all come in and the singer doesn't come into the studio. Oh, okay. And, um, and he's like passed out in the van. And so I say to the dude, it's like, what's going on with this dude? Like he's, he's, uh, he's like, you know, I got this call from the label and now he's passed out in the van. He's not even here. We're like loading in, we're getting started. Yeah. They were like, oh, I don't know. So he never, I never even met him that night. So that <laughs> night I'm like out to dinner with my wife and my, my daughter was like a year old at the time and some like okay. friends. And I get this text and it's like, yo, N word. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> you got something to say to me, say it to my fucking face. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> So you got you got text fronted on by someone you never even met. I got text fronted on. So <laughs> I showed up at the studio the next day and said, I, I woke him up. I was like, give me your phone. Taking my phone number out of here. You ever fucking call me. You ever text me again. The record's over. Yeah, yeah. You're going home. And uh, uh, uh. he was a fucking disaster. We actually didn't finish the record. Um, yeah. Wait, and who was he under the illusion you were talking shit to? The guys in the band or something? About him, you know. Oh my god, whatever. what a piece so, of work there, huh? Yeah, so there were some people like that. Like, uh, there was this great story where this, I was recording this, like, like you know, uh, one of the bands that, like, irons their hair and whatnot, and, mm-hmm. um, and the dude, like, we're, like, working on guitars, and the singer dude, like, was not a hardcore kid, right? Okay. Yeah. But he had a lot of hardcore gear. Okay, right. So he like goes out to this bar and then comes back and puts on a mad ball shirt. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, yo, I want them to know I'm hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm just like, dude, 
Yeah. You're not hard. Yeah, You're changing fine. costumes ain't the way, yeah. dog. Yeah. 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 Oh my god, it's too funny. Yeah. What was your react like you get that text when you're out to dinner with like a yo N word? Were you like laughing? Were you just like was, were you like pissed a little? No, I mean I was I was laughing a little bit, but I was also like, I'm not doing this. You know yeah, what I mean? Like right, I'm right. not I'm not like gonna I'm not gonna like go down this road with this dude and like, you know, have, you know, because part, part of it too was my studio after the studio you were at, and then I was in Beltsville. And then I, at the end of the, the, my time, I had a huge, like 7,000 square foot warehouse building in Fells Point. Right. And like, I had to make sure that I had things under control with the bands. Like, you know, you, you let these guys like go run wild and it's like, you know, so <laughs> yeah, I had to, I had to deal with that. <laughs> had pretty, to keep that in check. Yeah. Had to keep that in check. Yeah. Which one of those studios was the ones that was like directly on the Potomac river that you and Chuck Reagan and Chris Wallard would apparently fish before session? Yeah. So that was actually a house that I had in Harper's Ferry, okay. West Virginia. So that was when we did the new, what next, um, we recorded all the basic tracks in Beltsville. Um, that was the studio after where we recorded together. And okay. actually, Matt Squire bought the Beltsville studio for me and is still there. Really? Oh, it's yeah. not, okay. Yeah. So, but when we did the new what next, we did, um, we went out to West Virginia to track all the vocals. And it was pretty wild. Like, Chuck. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> would wake, you know, want to record at like six o'clock in the morning so we could <laughs> fish all day. We just went through that. We literally recorded a podcast with Chuck and the start time was, was 5.30 a.m. California. Oh, my God. Yeah. We couldn't book him. He's like, I'm out on the river all day. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But I asked him in that story. I was like, because I had heard sort of a mysterious tale that they showed up to do records with with a boat on their van. And he's like, not no, exactly, Benny. He's like, it was a canoe on my truck. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So so you guys used to, like, before recording vocal sessions, you'd, you'd hit the river with Chuck and Chris? Oh, yeah, not with Chris. Chris was not, like, Chris was on, like, the opposite schedule of Chuck. Right. So it was like, he's the late we would do, yeah. we would go, Chuck Chuck and I would go out in the canoe and fish and, and uh, Chuck would do his thing. And then I would come back. Chuck would cook for everybody. Right. And, and then, um, and then Chris would record like in the evenings. I, and that was, a, I mean, those guys are the fucking best, man. Yeah. The Kings, yeah. the Kings, the Kings. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, it was really cool. Cause right before like all this COVID shit, be well actually played with them two shows with hot water music in oh, Boston. Yeah. And it was fucking awesome i love them so much i mean it's like the what we were talking about early in the interview it's like the testament to great songs it's like that band can't go away because of that you know they could play tomorrow or they could play 20 years from now and people are still gonna connect so deeply with some of those songs the crazy thing is chuck just gets better it's like his voice is so fucking strong it's insane yeah so and his songwriting is so so developed and and then the band they've always been amazing i mean ashes i met them 
Ash has played like our second to last show we ever played was with Hot Water Music. That's when I met them. And I thought they were like 15 years older than me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they're like grown ass men. Yeah, you know? they're all like bearded and like, yeah, yeah, they were, yeah, they didn't. And wild. They were never young. They, they no. were, yeah, they were never young people. And Jason Black is like, who is this like might Watt motherfucker like playing this kind of stuff? Like, yeah, yeah and, I don't know. I'll tell you a funny story. The first time my wife ever met those guys in Hot Water Music, we were working on Flight in a Crash, and right. she she got home from school. She was in grad school at the time, and Chris Wallard was standing outside the studio, and she waved and. He was, she was like, hi. And he's like, your husband's a fucking asshole. (laughs) (laughs) But we made it through and became friends. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was great. But those guys are amazing. Brian, I think we've been on for a long time, huh? Yes. Sorry we didn't talk about Be Well too much. but Oh, we did. Yeah. We'll we'll hype it up a bunch in the intros and outros and all that. You're good, man. Well, hopefully we can hang someday. Maybe. Yeah play a concert or do something fun. I think this can happen. I would love that. Yeah, I was bummed that I missed you guys with Strike Anywhere because that was the weekend we were playing with Hot Water. Oh, right. Yeah, it was actually And then actually Andy from Praise is here about ready to track some vocals today. Oh, nice. That band was good. They made fun of us for our singers bringing their own mics, though. I bring my own mic. Yeah. Well, talk to them about that because they had something to say at that show. Okay, I'm, 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 I'm going to have a talk with him. All right, man. Well, so, yeah, Brian, all right. thanks for doing this, man. Thank that was a you, lot guys. Of fun. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks all so right. much. Okay. Whoa, lost my headphones. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Love the intensity, though, oh, Brad. Boy, yeah. Oh, now I'm, like, psyched to do the scene. Yeah, I got my energy <laughs> got, up, man. You got me set Felt up. Felt a little low, but I'm ready to go. So that uh, major label story kind of... Oh, dude. Spark some old memories in you, huh? It was, I mean, I was shocked. That was the exact story. It was like the, the that was the, that, it, I mean, I, there's nothing even that I would change. The whole thing about the way the producer interacted with the band. Right. Like, I mean, it was really, it was exactly what happened to us. And it was, it sucked, you know? And it's like, I mean, I came, I came to realize, like, by the time that our record was almost fully recorded, that this guy had had, he had had a record in his head and he was going to make that record with the next band that he worked with. Right. right, right, right and it just happened to yeah. be us. Like he like made all these technical mistakes and like, he definitely didn't, it was, it was bad, but it was, it was so close to his story that like every time, yeah. he, every next thing that he came to, I was like, that was us, man. Oh. That was so crazy. And as you're probably not the only one, cause it was, you know, when I was looking back doing research on this, I remember, you know, he had that story and then he also got tied into some major labels. I, I even think he had like a subsidiary through Island where he was helping. And I remember hanging out with him once and him just having like these real horror stories about the industry and right. the way people are treated and kind of the boardroom culture and stuff like that. But I always wondered what the Milltown story, because that record is good. Right. Like I've heard a bunch of those songs. Like it's, good right like really good so it's one of those crazy crazy wacky stories now it's funny so the last time that happened was so you know like we said in the interview the last time we talked was when i was trying to find a producer for my band the killing gift who was 
ironically, like partially um, inspired by his old band Ashes, because right. I had a real thing for like hardcore, post-hardcore bands with female vocals. It was right. always something I just had a, a thing for. And every single band who did that, there is Standpoint from New Jersey, Ashes, Copper, like this whole scene of bands that I was into. Samuel was another one I really liked that that kind of were doing this style. And I was dying to do that style, too. So I figured like, hey, Brian McTernan might actually be into this because, you know, uh, but he ended up being like, hey, my old, you know, drummer, Matt, he's like producing now and he's awesome. I think he's better than me. Like you guys should do it with him. So that's how we got hooked up with Squire. And the funniest thing that came out of that was, you know, it was the first time I had uh, played to a click right. in the studio. Yeah. It was the first time someone made me do it. So I was kind of doing it on the fly. I was really well rehearsed, so I ended up getting through it. We recorded drums. We recorded bass. We recorded uh, one guitar for the entire record, like 12 songs. And we're hanging out one night in the studio Studio is also, you know, down in Maryland. It's not in New Jersey. Right. And Matt Squire walks out holding the hard drive like this with like wires sticking out. And he's just like, yeah, I don't know, guys. And we're just like, wait, what do you mean you don't know? What? And he's like, the hard drive fried. And we're like, it was backed up, right? It's like. Uh, uh, no. Yeah. How many yeah. songs? The record. Drums, bass, and one guitar for the record. Like, they like were totally songs. gone. You couldn't save them. Gone. So, uh, of course, he's like, let me call Brian. Brian will know. You know, he's calling Brian. Brian didn't have much for him. And then eventually, they literally send the thing to a place in Virginia right, that, does. that extracts the data from like black boxes yeah, from yeah, planes yeah. that Super crash. Like, yeah, yeah, really like crazy stuff. And they were like, yeah, like it'll cost X amount of thousands of dollars yeah. and we can only guarantee we'll get like 40% of the data or right, something. So right. we like couldn't do it. Yeah, And we're all sitting there just like, what the hell is happening? He's like, I think the best thing for now is just to go home. Oh, just go Jesus. home let's settle down and let's figure this out so literally drove back to new jersey and then drove back down to do the record again my god yeah so that but the one good thing about it i must say since it was the first time i went to a click and stuff it was kind of like the most comprehensive pre-production you could possibly do right. <laughs> it's, it's literally do record it the record right yeah, right just record so honestly like the second time around was better so there was an upside to it. And you did it the whole pretty... thing to a click? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have very mixed feelings about the click. It depends, really depends on the style. I've got this track that a producer who was a like who was a was an anti click guy. And anytime uh, and he would sometimes actually have bands come in who wanted to play to a click. Sure. And and all he did was play in this track. And it's like one of the classic stone songs. It's like it's one of the big ones, like Sympathy for the Devil or something, like super familiar. You know the whole thing. And it's just the drums. Yeah. And the change in tempo between the choruses and the verses. Dude, it's like Intense. insanely different. Yeah. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. eight beats per minute or more. And when sure. you listen to the drums, you're like, no way, this is not the same track. There's no way. But you can line them up together and play it with the mix. And you don't, you don't notice it in the mix. 
Wow. Because it's just the vibe of the chorus yeah, just changes. Yeah, yeah. And it's really, and then, and I mean, it's not like the song speeds up. It like, the chorus is like. Just faster. Yeah. They're either they're faster yeah. or slower. They must have probably faster, but like substantially so. And then g- cuts back to the verse and it like drops down again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll find the track. Just, I've got it somewhere. It's yeah, amazing. It'll really, I, it's a stunning thing to hear. I mean, I think like it also has to do with the band. You know what I yeah. mean? Like so, some people don't have timing issues and some people can do it without, you know, cause it's not like, I think it's cool to play parts at a different speed, but it's not cool to play different speeds inside of the part. Exactly. You know what I mean? So if you're doing a chorus at one, a verse at another, a bridge at another, but it's consistent inside of that, right. then it can still sound cool. And- the thing that bothers me, like, like say on the Gaslight record, Sink or Swim, we didn't have a click. And there's a couple parts in that where I can hear myself like towards the end of a fill, towards the end of a really fast part, like a little dip in speed, a little right. pickup where it's actually like a herky jerky. And it makes it sound natural. I don't think anyone but me would notice, but I listen back to it now and there's a couple moments I'm like, oh, <sighs> fix that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it depends on the music. I mean, you know, I mean, in hardcore, it's probably good. If you can play to a click for hardcore, it's probably good. I mean, most general kind of like mid-tempo rock, the songs will speed up naturally a little bit anyway. Yeah. The energy well, comes rock. up. Like if you listen to any classic rock song, like with some of the world's greatest drummers, like it's a good trick to do. It's like, you know, because you can do this now with digital much easier than you could with like a CD or something is when it gets to the end, just go right back to the beginning of the song and you'll hear yeah. like substantially sure. for most of those tracks and it's a natural thing man the band gets well, excited it's just, it, it just it, the tempo goes up a little bit all right i mean to turn this into tape op magazine let me ask <laughs> you a question so but how much of that has to do with just recording technology because you know in the 60s and 70s you had to put people in a room playing together right you know what i mean and also editing was like you're not editing a snare you're not editing like this tiny little thing like like you're not punching in and out at every every right. single tiny part. So even like a click wasn't nearly as necessary. Now the way records are done where people are literally playing like right. All right, next part. Well, that's the thing. You need the entire thing on a grid yeah. to even make it remotely match yeah, up. Yeah, if you're so going to record that way, if you're going to do that where you're like I want I'm, I'm going to probably want to move things around and take stuff from different takes, like then you got to do it to a click, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and for like most, especially like speed metal, like they might as well be using a drum machine because if you, oh, yeah. if you could see the way these engineers take, they'll take the track. I mean, I've, I've, the, what's his name? The guy that you wanted to, you wanted to get in here. Um, uh, a like, Will? Yeah. So yeah. I worked with him at Rubber Tracks. Will and Putney. Like, yeah, Will Putney. He would like, the drummer would be like, okay, this is the verse. I'm going to play it for eight bars and just pick the best one. And he would do that, and then Will would take the best bar that was already like locked solid, yeah, yeah, and move the kick and snare perfectly on the grid, right? You know, and maybe replace if one of the snares was a little lower, he would replace it with another snare, and so yeah. you basically end up with a drum machine track. But I, mean, I know, that's, yeah, that's that kind of metal. I mean, you know, but what's the point of having a drummer at that? I know, I would, really, I would just really. use a drum machine. You might as well, <laughs> like, like I've seen people literally, you know get through a drum track and literally single every note and clean up every hit. And I'm like, if you're going back and doing this, you would have saved yourself 
about a few weeks of work <laughs> by just fucking programming this yeah. thing. Like, like yeah. why do you even? And it would sound why do you better. Even need me? It would yeah. actually sound more like what you want. <laughs> exactly. Like, but I don't know. I guess I guess I shouldn't tell the music industry that drummers aren't necessary. Yeah. But that's a bad look. So <laughs> Brian's got. So the one, you know, the reason Brian's out here doing press and stuff again is the fact that he's got a new band. Well, not that new at this point, but the band Be Well, new record coming out on Equal Vision. And this was one of those classic scenarios where I like saw the lineup and I was like, okay, (laughs) all right. I'm like, I know every one of these guys, all their bands used to be cool, but I know this story. All right, (laughs) let me hear it. You know, let me hear it. And then I'm like halfway through the first song, I'm like, yeah. all right like and I'm, i really like it it's cool yeah it's got a unique voice it's like somewhere between like you know dave smalley era dag nasty and just like more better recording and a more like modern melodic hardcore kind of thing to it it's it's really cool maybe far side a little bit nice. but it's got a it's got a lot of vibe and I was really pleasantly surprised by the band. And I think they're, they should do well, man. Like, and I'm really happy for Brian and all those guys. And, and the cool thing to hear from Brian too, is like, I think one of the reasons these bands fail so much is because like guys in their forties, fifties get together. It's like, Oh, let's just, let's just do this thing. It'll be fun. Right. And there's, there isn't that like thing behind it that makes great bands great. You know what I mean? There's not the fire. There needs and to be a need, a little exactly. need to say something. You know, and he wrote, you know, he said he hadn't done music in so long and he wrote that song for Battery and just this stuff like poured out of him and he needed right. a place to let it out. And and that's like, you can feel it. You can feel it in the music and you can also see it in the way he's presenting it and how bad he's getting behind it, you know? And like, I think that's like a lesson for people moving forward. You know what I mean? Like, don't don't even bother doing it if you're not like really all about it, because it's yeah. just going to make you look worse anyway. You know, <laughs> like for real. So I'm really happy for him and and all those guys. Um, so he's pushing it now that his Twitter, his Salad Day Studios personally and Be Well HC for the band. It's the same on Instagram. Definitely follow him and check him out, man. Like. Um, and then, you know, I would listen to any interview with Brian cause fuck, he's a good storyteller, man. Absolutely. He had, he had like the DC Baltimore version of John Joseph, you know, right. he was like, or like That's Freddie amazing. Madball. It's he was so like the amazing. little kid, like oh take God. it in. I, I love, love those, those kind stories. of stories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it just makes like lifelong rippers out of these people, you know? Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, Brian's awesome. That interview was awesome. Yeah. Um, thanks again, Brian. That was yeah. great. And, uh, Thank you, fans. We've got a couple new yeah. patrons. So if you want to be a patron, go to patreon.com slash going off track. Um, we've got a few incentives. There's some bonus material. We should be putting some up soon. A little slow over the summer because I've been away. Um, so I don't actually have all the bonus stuff I wanted to put up. But um, Brad's been whittling more. wood, by the way. He's been whittling yeah. this whole <laughs> this whole intro. He's got a curly mustache now. He's wearing some weird straw hat. Oh, yeah, I'm making my own clothes up here in the woods. What's going up to you in upstate New York? <laughs> Jesus. I thought it was just kind of like old rock and rollers looking for a lawn. I didn't know you were going to take it so seriously. You know? Yeah, man. Bark. Do you like my bark shirt? <laughs> bark is a durable material. You just have to know the right bark to get. I'm more of a hemp man. Oh. Uh, 
But yeah, man. So yeah, thanks to everyone who listens. Uh, I hope you made it through last week's episode without <laughs> feeling too uncomfortable. I hope this one made up for it. And uh, yeah, I'm going to post more stuff on the Patreon. We'll do the videos. As we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I got kids to feed. Hell so, yeah. So lay it on me, baby. You got trees to clean up. I got trees to clean up. <laughs> yeah, I got to get a stump grinder in here. That shit ain't cheap. Ooh, that's what she said. Oh, stop. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs> See you next week. 